On a winter's evening when I was 19 or 20 years old, I was leaving a college basketball game early. It was a game where my brother was playing. He played college basketball for a few years. Uh, but I was leaving because a huge snowstorm had blown into northeastern Ohio. And uh, before it got any worse, I thought I should try to get home. And what did I do? But I put uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on my uh, portable CD player, one of the ones in the late 90s that you would uh, plug into the cigarette lighter. And uh, because even then I assumed that it would probably take the 60 or 70 minutes that the Ninth Symphony takes to run all the way through. It would probably take me about that amount of time to drive home. And indeed I was right because uh, I began with the opening bars of the Ninth Symphony. And I'm pretty sure the very end of the fourth movement, the very end of the symphony, uh, corresponded almost exactly with me uh, driving as slowly as I possibly could up the freeway exit ramp and then onto the uh, usual back roads to get home. And uh, for those of you who've paid attention to the music that now introduces and uh, exits each episode on this podcast, you'll recognize that that 18 or 20 seconds or so also comes from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, from the fourth movement. It's after the chorus has had its say, and I think it is really one of my favorite moments, not just in Beethoven, but in all of music. And it was very hard for me to just to select uh, a tiny bit of it for bumper music here, but for those of you who would like to hear the full context of it, uh, this is what it sounds like as the chorus is trailing off and you just get this little wisp of uh, wonderful sound that I'm just amazed every time I hear it, uh, that Beethoven put this in, in all places, at the end of a huge uh, choral pronouncement. This is what it sounds like.
And it was really that experience of driving through that snowstorm, of going as slowly as I possibly could, of wondering if my old car was about to slip off into a ditch. Uh, that was really one of the most vivid and powerful experiences of music that I've ever had, not just because it's Beethoven, it's hard not to be moved by uh, Beethoven, but also being able to listen to that uh, straight through from beginning to end uh, without any interruption, which was hard enough to do back in the late 90s and is probably even harder uh, to do now, but also because of the associations that I've always held with the uh, the power or whatever it is, the the spell that is cast on being able to just drive by yourself and listen to something. But while I'm at it, while I'm still with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it's worth mentioning the second movement, because I also have a vivid memory of that as well. Um, I came to the Beatles music because uh, I was reading Helter Skelter, and I read about Charles Manson uh, getting his family into the Beatles in Revolution 9 and all of that in the White Album. And I'm pretty sure I didn't really begin to find Beethoven's symphonies or try to find his CDs at the discount CD rack at NRM at the uh, at the mall that I used to go to, uh, where you would get a CD for maybe $5. I don't think I started to do that in earnest until I saw A Clockwork Orange um, with my friends in high school. And of course, there's all different versions of Beethoven in there. And so there, it was a wonderful experience going to visit one of my friends who was uh, staying with his dad over the weekend. And they had an immense stereo, a great sound system. And uh, they had a Super Nintendo as well. And we played uh, Mario Kart late into the night listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on full blast. And what I remember uh, most of all about that is playing Mario Kart to this uh, to the second movement of the Ninth Symphony, which goes this way. Now that we have the Ninth Symphony out of the way, if I can be allowed to say a thing like that, uh, that's the last bit of any symphony that we will hear in this episode. I wanted to use this episode as an excuse to go through some of my favorite of Beethoven's music, and I really don't think that his best music is in the symphonies. Um, even though I love the Ninth Symphony and it has sort of become the um, unofficial uh, national anthem of I don't know, uh, European civilization or Western civilization or whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't think that is where he is at his best. He seems to be, for me, to be at his best in the music that is uh, most private. 
and uh, I don't want to say quiet, but just sort of in a cocoon. He's writing music for people who can't write music for themselves, you might say. And uh, just to get his dates down, he was born in 1770 and died in 1827. And as many of us know, beginning in the mid-1790s, in his mid-20s, his hearing uh, slowly, he, he slowly began to lose his hearing. It wasn't a thing of where he lost it all at once in one fell swoop. But over the course of 15 or 20 years, it slowly, slowly went away until he was living in this world of silence. And it is the music that is kind of soft and tender and very close to uh, silence and affection. And a relaxation is the wrong word. It's not necessarily relaxation, but also uh, mental anguish or just the experience of beauty or of contentment. Uh, that is the music of his that I am most drawn to. And I think that before we get into the two sections of, of music from the piano sonatas and from the string quartets, it is worth giving maybe my favorite example of that kind of music from Beethoven here. And this comes from his fifth piano concerto, opus number 73. This is the so-called emperor piano concerto, which he wrote when he was uh, in the year 1809. And if you happen to see the movie Immortal Beloved, which stars Gary Oldman as Beethoven, um, all the critics will tell you, and I'm sure they're right, that uh, this is uh, no Amadeus, but it is still a really interesting movie to see about Beethoven's life. And in that movie, you get to see Gary Oldman play the beginning of the Emperor Concerto, and he actually is really playing it. I remember the director saying something like, if we show Gary Oldman just playing the how difficult this opening is to the Emperor Concerto, if we show him playing that, uh, it won't matter if we use someone else's hands in the close-ups in the rest of the scenes. Uh, people will be taken in by that, and they will be convinced that it's him doing it. But uh, that's a wonderful scene to see as well, because in the movie, um, you get to see his hearing loss uh, happening when he is uh, trying to play this piece in public, and he is uh, unable to do so. But again, this is something that isn't... Um, it's not about depressing, mournful uh, Beethoven with a cloud over his head, and nor is it music for a depressed teenager or uh, some sort of antisocial person in their 20s or their 40s. Um, it's really just uh, beautiful music about being by yourself. And what I'm going to play is from the middle movement. That's the one that I'm talking about, about being by yourself, where it is just this long, I think it's about eight or 10 minutes long, this long sort of languorous thing with, uh, with uh, just a small chamber orchestra, and then uh, the piano comes into it. And then only at the very end, it, it uh, bleeds right into the third movement where the uh, piano comes back at full throttle, and so does the orchestra. And you realize it isn't, as I said, just about being alone, but it's also about 
uh, being able to emerge, being able to be public again. And you sort of need to have the ability to do both things. So here is just a tiny bit from the end of the second movement and how it uh, lends or leads itself just really remarkably, beautifully into the uh, the different kind of joy that is the third movement of the fifth piano concerto. I just get chills every time I hear that, um, that line from somebody, I forget who says it, uh, that happiness too is inevitable. Uh, it's not just the other side of it that uh, is inevitable. Uh, happiness too is inevitable. And there are different forms of it. Um, there is the long, languorous, uh, sort of uh, 
peace that you can find with just yourself, the contentment you can find with just yourself, but also, uh, at least this is the, these are the things that I visualize when I hear this music, of just uh, breaking out again uh, into company, into family, into friends. Uh, again, that is also something that um, is inevitable. Now we come to Beethoven's uh, piano sonatas, and he has uh, he has a lot of really wonderful slow movements, quiet stuff, the kind that I've just been speaking about, um, in his 32 piano sonatas. But what strikes me, listening to them all again recently, is that uh, what he has even more of is just uh, just great and, and beautiful energy and liveliness, even more than anything else. It sort of reminds me of uh, the story of the record producer Rick Rubin realizing that Johnny Cash is getting old and he doesn't have a recording contract anymore and that it's just important to get this guy uh, get this guy down on record with just him just him and his guitar and you have the that spate of I think uh, four or five albums that Rick Rubin produced and released uh, from Johnny Cash in the 1990s which are just remarkable because they are just Johnny Cash sitting there singing with a guitar. And I get that feeling listening to the piano sonatas of Beethoven as well. There's, there's, he doesn't have anything else to rely on. Uh, he doesn't have anything else to build off of. It is just him and the piano. And actually, uh, here is a very small remark from uh, Robert Greenberg, who's done an entire uh, set of lectures for the great courses about the piano sonatas of Beethoven, and he explains this uh, much better than I do. And after I play this quote, we'll we'll just hear. Let me let me get the list here. Uh, we'll just hear excerpts from a handful of his piano sonatas, which span his entire career. I'll play them. Um, I'll play them in chronological order, from the first and second piano sonatas, which date to 1796 all the way up to the 27th Piano Sonata, which dates to 1814. And of course, he went up to uh, eventually to have 32 Piano Sonatas. But uh, in that span of time, um, we want to talk about, as I do often here, of shortcuts, of shortcuts to humanity and character and temperament and stories and uh, just things that fill you up or just the idea of Shakespeare, not really being too worried about what is realistic, but of going for what uh, what supplies the energy, uh, what gets a story moving, or what, in many cases, with Beethoven or Shakespeare, or anybody who knows what they're doing very well, uh, what simply makes people smile. And I think the excerpts I have here from the 1st, 2nd, 8th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 17th, 21st and 27th piano sonata will uh, will give you that rise and will give you that lift. But before we get there, here is what uh, someone who knows a lot more about Beethoven and music than I do uh, has to say about Beethoven's uh, relationship to the piano. Beethoven published 32 piano sonatas. 
They span the length of his compositional career, having been written between early 1795, a few months after he turned 24, and January of 1822, a few weeks after he turned 51. His 32 piano sonatas were, for Beethoven, particularly special works. You see, Beethoven was a piano player. The piano was his axe, his voice, his entree to the greater musical world. He improvised for hours at the piano. He conceptualized essential musical ideas and compositional innovations at the piano. Literally, he spoke through the piano. Now, clearly, we can't hear Beethoven's actual speaking voice, dead as he was, 50 years before the invention of recorded sound. But we hear his voice if we listen carefully to his solo piano music. My friends, Beethoven's piano music is his voice, emerging from his mind, through his fingers, to our ears and our hearts. Beethoven's piano sonatas are, more than any other of his amazing works, his personal testament expressed in his own voice.
So where do you go from there after the symphonies, after uh, the piano concertos, and now the piano sonatas? Well, at least for me, and when I discovered them, um, they became sort of a benchmark for me, are Beethoven's 16 string quartets, which he composed from 1798 to 1828. But a good prelude to those is just a small bit of music here that uh, I hardly ever hear anybody uh, make reference to uh, at all. And this is a tiny bit from uh, Beethoven's uh, Piano Trio, Opus 70, and this is often referred to uh, simply as the Ghost Trio. Not really sure why it's called Ghost. I guess it can sound like somebody being haunted. But for me, the music, and I was surprised, I came across this as well on some you know, cheap $5 uh, compilation of classical moods or uh, sad piano music kind of thing that you would find at a Joanne Fabrics or something like that. And I was amazed that this uh, was Beethoven, that this was something that was um, almost 200 years old when I first heard it, because he wrote it in, uh, composed it in 1809. Um, and to me, it's always sounded like a relationship, the ups and downs and the rest of that. And then after you hear that little bit, you will hear uh, just a piece from Beethoven's 13th String Quartet, Opus 130, which was uh, composed in 1826. And this is a from the movement called the Cavatina. Now, Cavatina just means a short and simple song, but it will uh, it will rip your heart out. And it is one of those, uh, I don't know, one of those eternal things that uh, if it catches hold of you, you will never forget it. And how is how about it? It is just a short and a simple song. And it is worth saying, too, before we hear that Cavatina uh, let me see where it's where it says it here. Um, yes, this this is from the Wikipedia article about this quartet. The Cavatina is also the final piece that was placed on the Voyager Golden Record, a phonograph record containing a broad sample of the Earth's music, languages, um, and music sent into interstellar space in 1977 with the two unmanned Voyager probes. And it's interesting, it says, it immediately follows after the gospel blues song, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, by Blind Willie Johnson, a blind and deaf musician, side by side. So it's nice that uh, a short and simple song is also placed next to another short and simple song that can also tear your heart out. So here is... Beethoven's um, uh, Piano Trio Ghost, Opus 70, 1809, followed by a bit from his string quartet, uh, number 13, Opus 130, from 1826, the Cavatina.
Now, if I had quite known about Beethoven's uh, string quartets back during that basketball game in that winter storm, um, I probably would have chosen what I'm about to play for you to drive me home that night. I probably would have chosen any of his string quartets. Uh, they are uh, just monuments. I, I don't even know what to say about them. Um, I don't know a great deal technically about what music does and how it does it, but I know that these are things that, uh, you know, these are the things that you want to be listening to uh, on your deathbed. I mean, you, you never want to have these sounds uh, leave your mind, uh, leave your heart, leave your uh, memory. Um, I can remember going to uh, a Best Buy and uh, the great thrill it was to be able to find and to be able to to be able to afford a full recording, uh, a full set of all the recordings of every one of the sixteen string quartets that Beethoven wrote, um, and especially the the late quartets, um, just sort of find their way into the stratosphere or really just into somebody's mind they've they've often sounded to me like memory 
They've sounded to me like nostalgia. They've sounded to me like someone talking to themselves or of just sitting back after a long life or just a long year and trying to uh, get it all down into words. And I'm pretty sure the, the place where I first became aware of them was this remark from T.S. Eliot. I was working in the college library and uh, becoming distracted because, of course, I would be more distracted than actually working at a college library. And I came across this remark from T.S. Eliot in a letter that he wrote uh, in March of 1931. And he says, I have the A minor quartet of Beethoven on the gramophone, and I find it quite inexhaustible to study. There is a sort of heavenly, or at least more than human gaiety, about some of his later things, which one imagines might come to oneself as the fruit of reconciliation and relief after immense suffering. I should like to get something of that into verse before I die. And the A minor quartet, of course, is the string quartet number 15, opus 132. And uh, it was uh, completed in 1825. And I just want to play bits and pieces from the entire quartet, actually, all five of its movements. And, um, and of course, I should say, uh, Eliot's comments there about Beethoven's quartets ended up, uh, ended up informing the writing of T.S. Eliot's four quartets, which for a long time, and probably still is, some of my uh, favorite uh, music. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, the Ninth Symphony gets all the press. It's the thing that uh, uh, you have Schiller's lyrics as, as well. Um, it's the thing that people can chant. You can get together and uh, um, sort of have a rah-rah moment for humanity over the Ninth Symphony, uh, especially in the Fourth Movement. But you get to something like Opus 132, the 15th string quartet, and it's something else entirely. Um, I've told the story here before about would have been the fall of 2008 and taking the subway from Brooklyn to the Metropolitan Muse Museum of Art in New York City uh, with my wife and going to a little hall off of the Egyptian wing at the museum um, and hearing a, a quartet play this 15th quartet of Beethoven's, uh, you know, right in front of my eyes. I think we were actually in the front row for it. And just being stunned by it, seeing this music that has been uh, living disembodied in my head for uh, for more than 10 years at that point, um, and now, uh, dare I say it, even longer. Um, and just seeing it coming out of these these instruments that are right in front of me and out of these people's hands as they are uh, conversing with each other. Uh, that's the thing. Uh, people seem to say that Beethoven, what Beethoven did for the string quartet was to make it a conversation uh, between the instruments where 
no one of the instruments is uh, is actually leading. Uh, to me, it sounds to me more like somebody talking uh, to themselves, not people talking to each other, but one person talking to themselves. And what I'll do here is just play uh, just back to back to back um, little bits from each of the five movements. And you'll get that sense in the first two of just uh, a feeling, at least I do anyway, of rumination, of thinking over things and just what that process of reflection is like. And then you will get to the great third movement of this, uh, of this quartet. And it's 20 minutes long. And if I had to isolate one thing that is perhaps my favorite piece of music, it will be the 20 minutes of that third movement. And it's very hard to, uh, to, to break the excerpt uh, where I do. It's hard to break it anywhere. Um, but it's worth saying here that for Beethoven, it says uh, Beethoven wrote this piece, specifically the, the third movement, uh, after recovering from a serious illness, which he had feared would be fatal because he had been afflicted with an intestinal disorder during the entire winter of 1824 to 25. And so he thus headed this movement with the words, a holy song of thanksgiving of a convalescent to the deity in the Lydian mode. But Beethoven being Beethoven, there are also uh, great uh, anecdotes about him sitting there, deaf, not being able to hear, but being able to see quite obviously um, the trouble that, uh, that uh, professional string quartets in Vienna at the time were having, uh, rehearsing and trying to learn uh, the great difficulty, apparently, uh, that his late quartets provide for players of this kind of music. So there are both of those things. And, and in that third movement is just, uh, it seems to be everything. It seems to be the sound of a life lived, the sound of a life uh, remembered, and perhaps maybe that's even it, uh, the sort of searing sound that you get at the very end of the excerpt from the third movement that I play. Um, it is uh, maybe even the sound of a life understood or just of a life that has found uh, contentment even through the pain and even perhaps through joy that was different from the joy that one imagined for oneself. But now I will just uh, shut up and we will get to hear this, just a, a bit of this wonderful music, string quartet number 15, opus 132 from 1825.
Now again, where do you go from there? Well, uh, in order to keep this episode at a reasonable length, I will just play two more bits uh, from him, and I think that we will leave the night with a bit of great triumph and a bit of just uh, happy uh, departure. I think of Walt Whitman's line about how my real self is already far ahead of me and is standing there waiting for me to find him, and he's sort of grinning and laughing. Uh, the first piece will be just from the very beginning of the great Misa Solemnis, Opus 123, from 1823, I believe. Again, if you go looking for the Gary Oldman movie, uh, they, they uh, use this piece uh, quite marvelously. It's the moment of Beethoven's death, and then the great cry of Kyrie uh, comes in just as uh, Beethoven's uh, coffin is uh, taken out of his house and as it uh, slams into the gates and opens the gates. Um, this is another thing, just like the sudden eruption of music in the Emperor Concerto, when you get this grand, joyful Kyrie, um, I just can't help but smile and have faith in the world again. It's one of those things that Beethoven was able to do. Someone who, again, like Walt Whitman, um, the image of Whitman is the same one that I have of Beethoven in many ways, of uh, someone walking down the street, uh, in Whitman's case, with this new kind of poetry in his head, um, and having very few people to share it with, very few people who would understand where it comes from. And of Beethoven uh, being deaf on top of that, of being doubly and triply isolated, of not being a terribly good person with social graces and being kind of gruff and unpleasant to deal with. Um, what it must have been like to be the person to have all of these uh, all of these sounds. I think of them almost as characters in the way of Shakespeare's plays. All of these characters in his head that he was able to put down uh, into music. Um, and through all of it that he was still able to uh, not just be uh, angry about it or have moments of great sadness, but also that he was able to find immense joy in all of these things. And then right after that, we will hear just uh, a tiny, tiny bit from the 22nd Piano Sonata, Opus 54, from 1804, and that to me sounds like Beethoven uh, walking uh, happily out of the room and uh, maybe even dropping the mic, who knows. Um, look in the uh, post description or the episode description for the all of the recordings that I use, because these are the ones that I've been living with forever as well, and I like to uh, give credit to uh, the people who made these recordings because they are so special to me. And uh, I appreciate anyone listening out there. I was planning to do a bit of poetry this week, but uh, you can hear it in my voice. It's probably not good, uh, not a good poem voice. And so it seemed better to hand this week's episode almost entirely over to Beethoven. And so let's uh, give Beethoven a bit of triumph and a bit of music for him to just walk off stage. <laughs> 